the slow downward trend in emissions that we've seen in the US has really come from one sector, and that's the power sector. And it's mainly, not exclusively, but mainly from coal plants shutting down and being displaced by gas, um, which on some levels is, is a positive story because gas does burn more cleanly than coal. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Tom Rollins-Reese about American greenhouse gas emissions. There's a very good chance we'll be discussing the implications of a Joe Biden presidency for future emissions. Now, Tom has a PhD in physics from Oxford University, and he heads up Bloomberg NEF analysis for North America. So welcome to Energy Talks, Tom. Thanks very much. Now, I first came across your work uh, in a November 19th Matt Bullard column, as a colleague of yours, called The Pandemic, The Clean Power Plan, and The Power Paris Agreement. And here are some of the conclusions that uh, Bullard came to. Uh, American greenhouse gas emissions have been trending downwards for the past 12 years. That was a bit of a, su a surprise to me. And another one is that uh, you know the debate around Obama's clean power plan that was took place in 2014 to 2015 about decarbonizing the U.S. power sector. Uh, it was said at that time that the market would take care of the issue. We didn't the, the regulations weren't needed, and I think the critics were maybe proved right on that. So. Let's start this conversation with maybe just your take on the general trend of U.S. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Where are we at? So, I mean, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions are trending downwards, um, as, as my colleague uh, Nat Bullard highlight, highlighted in his article. Um, that's, that's not a short-term trend. That's not a recent thing that's been happening since around the, the mid-2000s. Um, and in particular, the... Um, the last financial crisis triggered a, a short-term drop in emissions, and it never really recovered after that. Um, and then during that period, the, 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 this, this slow downward trend in emissions that we've seen in the U.S. has really come from one sector, and that's the power sector. And it's mainly, not exclusively, but mainly from coal plants shutting down and being displaced by gas, um, which... On some levels, is is a positive story because gas does burn more cleanly than coal. Um, but the U.S. And, and it's economically driven because the U.S. has a lot of uh, cheap gas coming from fracking as a as a byproduct of oil production. Um, so interesting that that has led to a, uh, a a sort of a slow downturn in U.S. emissions is actually the the growth growth of the fossil fuel industry. But it, it won't carry on going down forever because once once there's no more coal to displace, then, then gas will be the dirtiest thing in the system. I had this conversation with a Canadian colleague not long ago, and her argument was that the, in the Canadian context, uh, switching from coal to some other form of uh, power generation, Canadians had to be very careful because uh, while gas seems attractive in the short term to bring down GHG emissions, you then lock in a source of uh, emissions for the long term. I mean, these are 30, 40, 50 year investments. And it seems like that is a concern in the US as well. It, it is a concern and it is something, you know, that policymakers will need to think about when they're thinking about the long term. Um, I'd also say though, 
this idea that it's going to lock gas in is, is also perhaps a little bit pessimistic for a couple of reasons. One of the things that's defined the last decade or so of, of the US power sector is cheap gas, which, like I mentioned, has been produced as a, as a byproduct of, of oil extraction. So, and that accounts for about 30 to 40% of, of US uh, gas consumed in the power sector. So you imagine they're getting a bunch of free gas. Um, and that's been reliant on the, the shale industry, which in turn has been reliant on high global oil prices. Now that global oil prices are, have dropped so much, shale is no longer economically viable in the way that it was. So we're quite possibly facing a situation where the gas actually has to make, make the economics work, or we, just, or, or we move away from that model, which will mean this era of cheap gas in the US could be coming to an end anyway. Couple this with the, the falling costs of emissions, there's actually a real danger for the, some of the gas capacity being built that it may end up being redundant at some point in the future. So I don't think that the fact that gas is being built now necessarily locks it in. And, you know, we think of, of, of fossil fuels as being the sort of the safe bet in energy, but, you know, there's a real possibility if you're investing in that area, there's real risks, both in terms of the gas price in the future and the fact that renewables are getting so much cheaper. Let's talk about that for a moment, because we're now talking about uh, according to the Lazard levelized cost of energy uh, estimates for 2020, we're talking about on the low end of both wind and solar getting under three cents a kilowatt hour, which makes it, you know, less expensive than any other form of, of power generation. And we see states like Texas, which are, uh, you know, has long been a wind pioneer and is now uh, incorporating a lot of solar, but we're seeing that also in California and other states. And it would seem... Uh, oh, and I should mention, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Jaime uh, uh, Baran from the International Energy Agency, who is their renewables analyst, who was saying that 90% of all uh, power generation capacity additions going forward will be uh, renewables, will be wind, wind solar, and, and batteries. So that kind of suggests that this, I guess, maybe my colleague's fear of, of locking in gas may be overstated simply because of the economics of, of uh, renewables. Yeah, I, I, th I think that I'm inclined to agree with that conclusion. Um, renewables obviously have zero running costs in effect. So it's, it's a completely sort of capital investment play in terms of their levelized costs. Once they're built, nothing's going to displace them unless it has somehow got negative costs. Whereas gas in relative terms is a much more about the fuel costs uh, compared to the, 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 the capital investments. Um, you know, where there's perhaps more of a role is for, for, for gas plants designed specifically for peaking, i.e. ones that'll be running at low capacity factors um, to, to make up where the other technologies have a shortfall, but not optimized towards running, you know, for long hours um, at higher efficiencies, um, like combined cycle technologies. Let's talk about uh, another sector for a moment, and that would be transportation, which makes up, I think, around a quarter of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And it seems to me that the electrification of transportation may be ready to do the same thing in, in the transport sector that gas did in the power sector, which is uh, dry, start to begin bending that curve downwards. Uh, we're 
uh, I think we're probably about two or three years away from sticker price parity between electric vehicles and gas powered vehicles. And uh, if Elon Musk has his way, we'll see very, very cheap batteries by the end of the end of the decade. And America, especially uh, states like California, are, are really pushing hard on the zero emission uh, vehicles front with mandates. What's your take on that? I mean, I think it's great to see so much activity on this. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, it's an exciting time to be involved in electric vehicles and the, the transport sector generally. I think the thing that gives me sort of hesitation to get too optimistic, and I think there's a real challenge uh, for all of this, is you can make dramatic change in the short term in terms of, you know, what's happening with new vehicles and new infrastructure. And we're still some way from that. But even with that, there's a, there's a lag in terms of the turnover of the overall fleet of vehicles that are on the road. So, you know, to start materially affecting uh, emissions from transport, say, 10 years from now, you not need to start having activity now and, and quite, quite drastic activity, which is a, it's a very difficult problem to solve. I don't think that I necessarily have the answers, but I think that it's, you know, going back to um, what we're what we were saying just before we started recording, um, I think it, 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 it's another reason why there needs to be more focus on transport to try and figure out this, this part of the puzzle. I was uh, doing an interview with an economist uh, not that long ago, and they were uh, speculating that perhaps what Biden might do is bring in a program that would turn over that auto fleet more quickly than the average, you know, 13 years. And especially concentrating on, you know, the older, I mean, they've had cash for clunkers for a long time, uh, but accelerate that and, you know, go after those vehicles that were produced, say, in the aughts from 2000 to 2010, which are less fuel efficient and maybe a little, a little bit more polluting, get them out of the auto fleet and get that average uh, age of an auto maybe down below below 10 years. What do you think the odds are of Biden doing that? Uh, it's an interesting question. And I should, uh, I should add, you know, that I am I'm still getting to grips with the, the ins and outs of US politics. I think that it, it, it really, for this to succeed, it, it has to have um, strong buy-in from the automakers who will see this as an opportunity potentially. Um, and if that then can translate into opportunities around jobs. Um, and so there's a sort of a domestic manufacturing angle that would need to accompany such a, an aggressive um, phase out of the, uh, the vehicle fleet for it to be um, politically palatable. I mean, I, what I think that everyone would want to avoid is, is sort of a situation like happened with solar in, in Germany where the government subsidized uh, the uptake of a technology that drove the development of an industry in a different country, which in, in, in that particular case was China. So I think there needs to be a coordinated plan, not just around phasing out the existing fleet, but for this to be politically palatable, there would also be, need to be an examination of, of the supply chain and the opportunities to create jobs in the US. Um, I can't see it happening any other way. Let me give you uh, a, an explanation for why I'm a little optimistic on this front. A, an underreported and undercommented on part of the clean energy plan that Biden put out 
And it, it, obviously it wasn't uh, the president-elect who wrote the, the platform, but whoever did really, I think, understood this, you know, where the, the clean energy industry is going globally, because Biden says that he's committed to making the, uh, uh, the United States the number one clean energy uh, power in, in, the, in the world. And so he understands that there's a clean energy, it's like an arms race, between North America, Europe, and Asia. And he's determined that the U.S. is going to uh, get back on top of that arms race. And that would argue for some of these more aggressive uh, programs, and in particular when it comes to manufacturing of electric vehicles and the supply chains that are, are critical to those, because that's how you get back on top of you know, the battery industry, the EV industry, and, and other related industries. What, what do you make of that? It, it, it makes sense. I think that, uh, you know, we have to think about the fronts that the U.S., you know, in terms of this stated ambition of the U.S. becoming the, the, the sort of the powerhouse on, on clean energy. Obviously, clean energy isn't a single entity. It's lots of different sectors. Um, and I think that to some extent, the ship has sailed on technologies like wind and solar. Solar manufacturing is just so consolidated in China, it would be very painful for the US to try and compete there. On wind energy, there's, you know, European manufacturers have, have really got a strong position. And we're even seeing in, in the development of offshore wind in the US, it's European com companies that are, 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 are sort of getting into those opportunities early um, around the development of those projects. Perhaps electric vehicles, given that the US has a track record in, in automotive, um, and you have uh, some degree of a, a battery supply chain in the US, perhaps provide is, is an opportunity. But there, the big competition will between, be between US and China. Um, those are the two horses that are in that particular race. And perhaps that is the, the race that I would say the US is still in contention. Let's talk about another big contributor to GHG emissions. And this, again, I don't think gets the attention that it deserves. And that's forest fires. And we've seen them particularly in California. There's been a huge issue. But as climate, climate change worsens and conditions become drier, I would expect that we'll see that forest fires become a, an issue in other states. How big is the problem? So I'm just bringing up the numbers now to make sure I, I get it right. Um, we estimate that forest fires in 2020 in the US were close to 200 million tons of CO2 higher than they were in 2019. Taking into account 2019 was a particularly low year, but it's still a massive uptick. Um, now, I got this data from a, a group of... Um, this collaboration of, of academics uh, at various different universities that work with NASA and analyze satellite data to try and make a rough estimate of this. Um, and, you know, it's really their area of expertise and not mine. But in my correspondence with them, you know, one of the things they wanted to emphasize is that this stuff, you know, sometimes you have uh, anomalous years and, you know, you shouldn't try and read too much into one year. So for sure, 2020 was a really bad year for US um, forest fires, it might just be a blip. The thing that gives me a little bit more cause for concern is when we think about it in terms of fires in temperate regions, which would include the US, is 
and it would include Australia as well. So if we take 2019, where there were a lot of fires in Australia, and then 2020, uh, there, were, there was a, a large number in the US, it represents a significant uptick in this type of forest fire um, globally. So it remains to be seen in the next few years if this is, if this is a new trend, and indeed this is you know, a, a feedback effect from, uh, from global warming, or whether this is just you know, as part of the natural way these things work, um, sometimes you have years with, with more fires than others. And, you know, so I think we're, we have to watch this space. But certainly if it does turn out to be a trend, I think it's, I don't necessarily think that it's fair to include that in, you know, the US's uh, Paris targets or, or because, you know, you're a country with a lot of forests. That doesn't mean you should be punished or penalized for that. But it's certainly an opportunity maybe uh, reversing this trend, if it is a trend, um, and managing those forests well, is an opportunity to avoid a lot of emissions. That I think you know is something that should be should be thought about. Well, speaking of Paris climate targets, uh, I was surprised to read in Nat's uh, column that the U.S. is now just barely, but nevertheless, uh, if if the current trajectory holds, is actually on on pace to meet its, its, uh, its climate targets. And th that was a little surprising. What do you make of that? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I have to take responsibility for this one um, because I, I, I uh, you know, this was a, something that resulted from a little bit of analysis I did. And so let me, let me give it in its full context. We took, you know, 2016 when that, that, that target was agreed and then we looked at 2025 and we drew a straight line on the chart of, you know, U.S. economy-wide emissions and said, you know, if you're sitting in 2016 and you're thinking about hitting this target, this straight line represents the trajectory you need to be on. And then obviously Trump took the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement and the emissions have been, you know, nowhere near that, that line. 2020, the, the, the disruption we've seen, brings the US back to where it was supposed to be on that line. But obviously we know that's because of the pandemic, because people haven't been traveling. As soon as you take all of that away, you would expect emissions to bounce back up. So when, I, when we say that it's back on track, what we really mean is on the chart, it's where it was supposed to be, but for all the wrong reasons and in a way that is not necessarily binding. So, you know, it's not, it's not going to be baked in. If, if, there's, if the U.S. recovers back to where, where it was, then it'll be way off track again. So we say it's, it's back on track. And this is just really to emphasize that there's still an opportunity when the U.S. enters into the Paris Agreement or re-enters into the Paris Agreement for it to, to meet its original commitments. Whereas if, there, if this had, none of this had happened, you'd say there's no chance at all. Now there is a chance, but it's still reliant on a huge amount of work being done and for the economy to, to, to grow back greener, so to speak. Uh, we'll close on this note, Tom. I, I, had, I did a, an interview uh, for Energy Talks yesterday with uh, Dr. Seth Klein, who's uh, a Canadian climate activist, and, and he argues that we are so far behind uh, in terms of meeting our Paris climate uh, targets that only putting an economy on a war footing and basically having the government direct much of production and so on will get us there. And, and, and he justifies that argument, you know, with this is the, the climate change is such a crisis. It is kind of like a, a world war in its, in its severity. 
And this conversation and the, the other reporting I do, though, gives me some hope that a combination of escalating policy over time, better technology, changes in consumer habits, we is actually, we can get there. We can achieve those uh, climate targets, at least in North America and, and perhaps parts of Europe. Uh, what would be uh, your take on that? Um, I, I sort of half share your optimism. I think that, you know, where I'm very optimistic is on the power sector. The technologies have reached that maturity. They're crossing the tipping points. We're seeing the transition that we had hoped for. There's still a huge amount of work to be done. Where the real pain is going to be is on how we move away from oil and transport. Um, and obviously electric vehicles offer us some hope there, but it's, it, it, it does require more drastic action to meet those, uh, to, to start hitting targets, particularly because, I mean, I, I, just to, to give an example, I'm, I'm also looking at emissions in Canada and we haven't finished the analysis there, but in Canada, the majority of the power sector is uh, from, from hydro. So actually overall, very low emissions, which means that in terms of that overall emissions target, the sort of the things that other economies have, you know, coal getting shut down, renewables coming in, can mask some of the failings in other sectors. And the, the, the reason the, 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 the emissions targets debate in Canada is so pointed is that they don't have that to disguise some of the failings in other areas. And I think we're now reaching the point in the US where the power sector is, is, is getting cleaner and cleaner and, and there's less and less for that to give in terms of emissions reductions. And so now the, the, the other sectors and in particular transport are being exposed as not having made enough progress. So I think that there is some optimism in some sectors that you know, this, doesn't, this can be sort of maybe direct, you know, directing economic forces effectively can, can do it. I think that maybe a more warlike mentality, I can sympathize with that argument more when it comes to some of the other sectors. Perhaps if, if, we, if, I'm, if I'm standing in the shoes of a climate activist, I would say that's where that warlike energy is probably best directed. Um, now, whether that's politically palatable or not is not for me to say, but um, so I kind of half agree with the optimism, half agree with your, your guests from yesterday. Just to wrap up, I'll, a few uh, observations about the Canadian situation. Canada is particularly, uh, it's going to be difficult for Canada to meet its targets uh, on, in two areas. Uh, one is industry, because a lot of that is dominated by oil and gas production, uh, which makes up 26% of national emissions. The oil sands alone make up 11% of national uh, emissions. And decarbonizing the oil sands, while there is technology to do it, is a very, very difficult task, both technically and politically. So that watch for that. That's going to be a, a big yeah. issue. And the other is transportation, because for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, Canada is a very much a cold climate uh, country, and Canadians are used to <laughs> driving bigger vehicles like trucks and SUVs. And I, I think we're going to see that transportation also will be a very difficult sector to decarbonize and electrify. So Canada is, has got a lot of challenges. And, and, and if, in fact, we may see that the U.S. does a better job of meeting its Paris uh, targets than, than Canada does. I'd agree with that. Just one final thought, though, is 
in, in a certain sense, you know, for everyone else, looking at what Canada does, it's kind of interesting because for the reasons we discussed, Canada is facing the kind of conversations now that other countries will be facing in five years' time because they don't have any easy options or Canada doesn't have any easy options um, that some other countries have some easy options that they can win on right now and, you know, kick the difficult conversations down, down, down the curb. So I think it's really interesting to see what Canada does and how it handles that situation and how, how the conversation plays out, because I think everyone can learn from that. A, a second final thought. Uh, <laughs> one thing I will say is the, the uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's Liberal government has brought in a very comprehensive suite of climate policies, everything from a national carbon price to a large emitter carbon tax and a whole variety of other uh, regulatory and incent uh, uh, in, uh, subsidies and incentives to adopt cleaner technology. The, the problem is going to be the decentralized nature of the federation, because a lot of this, the implementation will take place at the provincial level, because it, they have the constitutional authority. And so it's kind of, for him, it's kind of, for the prime minister, it's kind of like pushing a string. You know? Right. <laughs> that's going to make it very, very difficult. And so I, what I expect to see, and we'll see, Tom, uh, I'll interview you five or 10 years down the road, and we'll see if yeah. I'm correct. But I think we'll, what we'll see is at the federal level, the government slowly tightening the screws of all of those policy initiatives. And if the, a particular province or provinces doesn't come along, then they will override the authority of the province and impose the federal uh, policy or, or program on the province and they'll just keep tightening and tightening it every year in the hopes that that will get them to where they want to go. So we'll watch that with a considerable interest and be comparing it to the US where we have very different situation and a different uh, a policy mix. So Tom, thank you very much for this. Uh, really appreciate the insights. And thank you. We will have you back before five years, I promise. <laughs> maybe, maybe when I've actually got something to say uh, after our, I've finished our Canada analysis, I'll have more to add to this debate. Um, but thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed it. We'll look forward to the conversation.